dawn had broken and there were 300 hungry orphans looking at George Mueller, wondering what they were gonna eat for breakfast. Unfortunately, on this morning, the cupboards were bare and Mueller himself didn't know how he was gonna feed these orphans that were under his care, but he brought them together and just like he did every other morning, he led them in the saying of a prayer. And this was his prayer, Lord, thank you for the food that you are about to give us. Amen. And the story goes that as he said amen, there was a knock at the door and he opened the door and the baker was standing there. He had three trays of bread and he said, I've been up since two in the morning baking bread for you. Could you use this? And Mueller said, absolutely. And the baker gave him the bread. After that, the knock on the door again, and it was the milkman. The milkman said, my truck broke down right outside of your place. Could you use some fresh milk? You know, it's amazing when you start to read through this biography, the story of George Mueller's life. He was this remarkable man who, in a time in England when kids were just being tossed into the streets, much like Charles Dickens' novel, Oliver Twist, uh, Mueller brought these kids into his home and then eventually developed orphanages for them. At one point in time, he was caring for 2,000 orphans at one, at one time and then 10,000 throughout the course of his life. He, he educated 120,000 kids in England. And he never once, never once asked anybody for money. He only prayed. And the Lord funneled into his hands uh, the equivalent today of what would be 97 million dollars because he prayed. I mean, can you imagine? Um, George Mueller used to keep track of all of his prayers and the way that God answered. And in his prayer journal, he records over 50,000 answers to prayer. 50,000 answers to prayer. 30,000 of which he said were answered either that day or the same hour that he prayed. But that's roughly 500 answered prayers every year for, let me get this right, 60 years. <laughs> that's amazing. That is amazing. It stirs in me. I don't know what it does in you. But that story stirs in me two things. Number one, it stirs in me immense faith. My God is able. And right on the heels of that, it stirs in me some questions. <laughs> questions like, well, God, why do you answer the prayer to find the parking spot right in front of the grocery store, but you don't answer the prayer to heal the terminal cancer? It stirs up all sorts of questions in me, like, how does prayer work? And I think if I were to boil those questions down into two things, here's what they would be. Here's what I would say. Those questions are in two categories. Number one, God, does, does prayer change your mind? When I pray, does it change the God of heaven? And if so, isn't that a little bit dangerous? I mean, I mean that my prayers could control God? 
And just before we get too far down that road, let me just say that no, that's not what prayer does. Prayer does not control God, but it certainly does influence God. I love the way, and those are two different things. I love the way that Karl Barth wrote it. He said this, God does not act the same way whether we pray or not. That prayer does influence God, but it does not control God. And yet there's this connection between my prayers and what happens in real life. Study after study would show that prayer is efficacious, that that it, it works. So that's the first thing that I go, man, I wrestle with it because, well, what, how does God interact with our prayers in his sovereignty? Second thing it stirs in me is all sorts of personal questions. Like, God, why didn't you answer my prayers to heal my mom? God, why, why didn't you answer this prayer and this prayer and this prayer and this prayer? It seems like there's some really important prayers that I've prayed that have just gone unanswered. And so I hear the echo of Jesus's words, ask anything in my name and it will be given to you. And I hear uh, George Mueller's prayers being answered in miraculous ways. And, And yet there's this almost haunting emptiness of some of the ways that God hasn't answered prayer in my life. What about you? What about you? See, here's what we're going to do today. What I want to do today is I want to invite you into a story, and my hope is twofold with this story. Number one, that it would cause us to rethink our theology of prayer, and number two, that it would cause us to press into rewiring our experience with prayer, that we would be people who boldly stand before the throne of God and ask, and ask Him to move on our behalf. And our guide for this journey is going to be a woman by the name of Hannah. If you have your Bible, will you open with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we're going to see a George Mueller-esque answer to prayer. Here's the way this book and this chapter begin. It says this, There was a certain man of Ramathame Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerahim, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives, one whose name was Hannah and the other one Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now, this man used to go up year after year to the city to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. And one day, Elkanah sacrificed... Uh, one, on the day that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And often she went up to the house of the Lord. She used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept. Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Now, okay, just a few observations before we get into Hannah's petition before God. Number one, um, 
uh, Elkanah reminds us why it's a good idea to only have one wife, right? I mean, this guy is oblivious. If We're not going to give any Husband of the Year award to Elkanah. He's not going to get it. It's just not going to happen, right? And if husbands, if you need to feel good about your husbandry this week, just read through the story of Elkanah. You'll go, I'm not doing all that bad. I mean, he's just totally oblivious to the way that the wives are uh, quarreling amongst themselves because of the way that they're being treated by him and because of the way that they think, uh, because of the way Elkanah thinks that her having kids makes her more valuable in the eyes of Elkanah and in the eyes of God. So you need to know that in this day and this time, not having kids was a sign of being stricken by God. And so Hannah, in contrast to Peninnah, thinks, man, I've been stricken by God. And so <laughs> Elkanah's comment to her, am I, not, uh, am I not more to you than 10 sons at the very end here? The answer is that, to that is no, you're not. You're not. Uh, she longs to have kids. And if you've been through that journey of infertility, you know how painful that prayer can be, that longing can be. And so listen to what Hannah does. After they'd eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. It it was the place of authority. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head." See, Hannah's essentially saying, my, my son's going to live under what's called a Nazarite vow. It's a, an elevated level of dedication to God to say, God, I want you to use my life. But as we look at the way that Hannah prays, she's the very first person in the Bible to address God as Lord of hosts. Literally, Yahweh of the armies. It was her way of saying, God, you are stronger, more powerful than any other lowercase g God. It was Hannah's way of putting a stake in the ground and saying, God, if you want to open my womb and allow me to have kids, you have every capability to do that. Nothing can stop you. Nothing can prevent you from doing what you want to do. And I think Hannah shows us something in this. Hannah's, Hannah is inviting us to become people of prayer. And I'd invite you to write this down. We pray because we are confident that God can, not because we are sure that God will. Let me repeat that because I want you to catch this. We pray because we are confident that God can. He can do whatever he wants. Not because we are sure that God will. It's still offering our request to him and saying, God, you need to do what you think is best. You need to do what you know is a part of your will and a part of your plan. It's trusting God saying, um, Psalm 115 verse 3, the Lord is in heaven and does whatever pleases him. Nothing can stop you. And yet, and yet, we're coming under your gracious rule and reign. One of my favorite stories in all the scriptures about this is about a man named Jonathan who is looking at the Philistine army and he says to his armor bearer in 1 Samuel chapter 14 verse 6, Come, 
Let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, looking at the Philistines. It may be that God will move, the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. I mean, listen to this battle cry. Uh, God might show up. God might give us victory. And then he says, if he wants to, nothing, nothing can stop him. And this is Hannah's approach in prayer. And as we petition before the throne of heaven, it's our approach too. We are confident that God can. We're not sure that God will, but we are going to be people who ask. See, Hannah's prayer, two words, remember me. It's not as though God forgot. God doesn't forget anything. Hannah's not trying to jog God's memory. God's never lost his keys and thought, oh, where'd I put those? I wish I could remember. That, that, no, he is God. Remember me all throughout the scriptures is a way of calling on the covenantal God to act uniquely in a fresh way on our behalf to change the course of the future, to change the course of the future. That's what Hannah is asking when she says, remember me. And it's what I'd invite you to ask as well. Now let's learn from Hannah a little bit more of what that looks like. Hannah is a person who helped shape the course of Israel's history as much as any person. I mean, this answer to prayer helps chart the course of the way that Israel moves into the future. And Hannah's this unique person. She's the only woman in the Old Testament to have, to be it's said of her that she went up to the house of the Lord. It's the only woman that we have recorded praying in the Old Testament, and she prays one of the longest prayers recorded in the Old Testament. I mean, some have suggested that Hannah is the most pious woman that we have in the Old Testament, and I would suggest to you that the way that she prays is a model for us of how to petition before heaven. So what does that look like and what do we learn from Hannah? Here's the first thing that we learn. We see in verses one through 10 that Hannah has this rhythm with her family of coming up to worship and to sacrifice. She has devotion. She calls God Yahweh, which is the personal, covenantal, loving, kind name for God. It's not just generic. She knows God. And she calls on him, knowing who he is, to act powerfully on her behalf. See, Hannah has this conviction about God's goodness. And what she teaches us, I'd invite you to write this down, is that petition is birthed in relationship. It's birthed in relationship with God. Tim Keller would write it like this. The power of our prayers then lies not primarily in our effort and striving or in any technique, but rather in our knowledge of God. Knowledge and relationship with God is what allows us to come before God and to pray, Keller says, with power. And here's what I want you to hear, Emmanuel Faith. Prayer has a relational component to it. Hannah believes God cares 
and she is convinced that God is good, therefore she prays. And in so many ways, she lays the groundwork for the prayer that Jesus is going to teach his disciples to pray when they say to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. He'll say this, pray like this, pray, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. See, prayer is birthed out of relationship, relationship with God. And before Jesus invited people to pray like this, there is no evidence in Christian or Jewish literature of people addressing God as Abba or God as Father. It was an as intimate a way as Jesus could call people and invite people to pray, believing that God is powerful. But I think for so many of us, for so many of us, prayer is sort of like a telemarketing phone call, right? Like, like somebody is calling somebody they don't know to try to get them to do something that they don't want to do. We're cold calling God, no relationship, to try to get something out of God's hand that we assume he probably doesn't really want to give. But that's not the way that Hannah approaches prayer. And it's not the way that you're called to approach prayer either. That yes, yes, in him, in God, we live and move and have our being. But this is not a distant, platonic, out there, somewhere, unmoved mover God. This is a God who cares for his people, who gave his own life for us, that we might call him Father which I think also begs all these questions, right? Like, God, why don't you answer sometimes when it seems like that would be what's best for us? God, why, why don't you answer the cry of our heart when it seems like you could? And I think here's, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, but if we begin with the conviction that God is strong enough to do anything, we also, I think, have to believe that God is wise enough to know whether or not he should. And it's the conviction that God is Father, that petition is birthed in relationship that allows us to receive God's no and still know that he cares. Second thing that Hannah does, verse 12, and follow along with me there in your Bible. She says this, it says this, As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth, Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved. Her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. Now, just a quick uh, little time out here and we'll finish this text. Notice how much prayer has changed over the course of the last few thousand years. Um, now, today, it's very common to pray without audibly saying anything, to pray in your heart. Then, uh, it was not. And also notice, Elkanah, Hannah's husband, is completely oblivious to her pain. And Eli, the priest, is completely oblivious to her prayers. I mean, you have this woman of faith standing in between these two men who, in many ways, aren't holding up their end of the bargain. But she is. Verse 15, but Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. 
Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman for as long as I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Speaking out. I've been speaking out. And she's talking about prayer. That was one of the verses that inspired the title of the series, Raise Your Voice. Because that's exactly what Hannah does. And I love that Hannah brings her whole self It's recorded as anxiety or vexation or she's troubled in spirit. See, Hannah doesn't try to hide what's going on from God. She doesn't try to pull herself together before she brings her petition before God. No, she pours out her whole self. And petition is not only birthed in relationship, but it's also offered in honesty. It's offered in honesty. Hannah doesn't try to pretend that she's doing fine. She doesn't try to pacify her pain. She pours out her heart before the Lord. And in doing so, she invites us to do the exact same thing, to to pour out our requests before the Lord. But there's a few things that I want to just point out and drill into a little bit deeper that Hannah does for us and Hannah shows us. The first thing, she shows us how important self-awareness is to prayer, that we cannot be unaware of what's going on inside of our own soul and be honest before God. Now for Hannah, her emotions are right on the surface and all of her brokenness and pain is right there. For some of us, we might need to do a little bit uh, deeper digging to find out what what are those things that we've been hiding and what is that pain that we're carrying so that we can bring it right before God. But here's the second thing that Hannah trusts. Hannah trusts that God sees her. In fact, one of the names for God in the Old Testament, first attributed to God by Hagar, is El Roy. It means the God who sees. But embodied within this God who sees, it's not just that he sees, but that he actually cares for us. What's interesting to me is that all of Hannah's pain actually, actually helps her become a person of faith. It's because of her deep pain that she becomes a person of faith. And I think she paints this picture for us. You see, pain can either point us and draw us away from God, or it can push us toward God. But in so many ways, it can't do both. It will do one or the other. Which is why the Apostle Paul will write this to the church at Philippi. And I think Hannah models this for us and we're called to embody it as well. He wrote this. And by the way, this is the most highlighted verse in the Bible on the Kindle version of the Bible. So this is the verse people are highlighting more than any other verse right now. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying. There will be moments in life that cause anxiety or vexation, as Hannah would put it. Um, Things that go on that we go, God, I don't like this. And God, this hurts. And God, this stings. And it's those moments when we find ourselves carrying those things that we have two choices. We can either carry it ourselves, or we can say to God, here, you take it. 
you take it. And in so many ways, that's what prayer is. It's a release. It's saying back to God, God, here it is. You take it. See, your pain can, and anxiety can either drive you crazy or it can drive you to prayer, but it cannot do both. And Paul says, when it drives us to prayer, there's this peace of God that guards our mind that goes beyond understanding, which means it probably goes beyond circumstances also because circumstances, if those just automatically changed, we would understand that. But he goes, oh, it's, it's beyond that. So Hannah prays her pain because she knows, she knows what's going on inside. She knows that God sees. And here's the third thing that Hannah shows us in this, that she trusts that she can, it's better to be honest before God than perfect. It's better to be honest and, than to have everything all together. And in so many ways, she models for us what the author of Hebrews reminds us. He says this, For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. So he goes, all right, because of that, verse 16, let us then draw with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So friends, I am inviting you, calling you to draw near, to bring your whole broken self before the King of heaven and to pour your heart out, to ask him to move, to remember you, to move on your behalf, to show his hand of power and might and to change the course of the future. I've prayed with a lot of you over the last few weeks about financial situations that you're in. I've prayed with a number of you about relationships that seem to be on the fray. A number of marriages in this season right now, right now, in our COVID lockdown season that are just walking through a really difficult time. And I just, as one of your pastors, want to invite you, pour your heart out to God. He sees you. He cares and he can handle your pain. All right, so, so far Hannah has shown us that petition is birthed in relationship, that it's offered in honesty. I mean, Hannah shows us that pain can be a portal to prayer rather than a catalyst for despair. And now she's going to show us one final thing. In verses 17 through 19, listen to the way that the story reads. It says, Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel, may the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. And then they went back to their house at Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. That's new in the biblical sense, like new where you could potentially have a baby after knowing. And the Lord says, remembered her. 
remembered her. See, Hannah's already shown us that she's committed to the Lord and the vow that she made to him. And now she shows us what it looks like to trust that God's going to move. Because when Eli says, your prayer's going to be answered, Hannah receives it in faith. And here's the next thing that she teaches us, that her petition and ours is to be founded on faith. See, I don't know the exact interchange between answered prayer and faith. I only know that one exists. Now, now, to be sure, you can take this way too far. I can remember when my mom was sick, when she was dealing with an undiagnosed brain condition, people were praying for her. And we had well-intentioned but misinformed Christian friends who said to us, listen, it's your lack of faith or your mom's lack of faith that's the reason that she's not healed. That's bad theology. That is not true at all. And yet, and yet, there is a connection between faith creating the soil that God answers prayer within. I mean, listen to the way that Matthew records Jesus' ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, where people started to reject him. Matthew, in verse uh, 58 of chapter 13, wrote this. He said, He did not do many mighty works there in Nazareth because of their unbelief because of their unbelief. See, there's some mysterious and unsystematic relationship between faith and answered prayer. It seems as though lack of faith inhibits God's ability to answer prayer, but the presence of faith, on the other hand, doesn't always guarantee that God's going to answer prayer the exact way that we want. Remember, remember, we pray because we are certain that God can but we're not sure that God will. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about faith and what that means and what that looks like. But it's most helpful in my mind when I read the word faith just to simply view it as trust. To say back to God, God, I trust that you are able and I trust that you are good. And I, like Hannah, want to have open hands to receive whatever it is that you're pouring out. I think that's what faith is. Faith is saying, God, I am willing and able and ready to receive whatever it is that you are pouring out. Hannah's bold faith essentially says, God, If you say so, if you say so, I will trust. Do you have that same type of conviction? He's able. He is able. And we trust that he pours out good things to his children, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Well, listen to the way that the story ended. It says this in verse 20, And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. Now, just a quick time out. In due time. That means that prayer, the answer to prayer wasn't instantaneous. It was actually a process. It was a process that involved Hannah and that involved Elkanah and that involved God. But it took some time. And she called his name Samuel. First she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The name Samuel means asked from God. And in a sense, here's what Hannah's doing. Hannah shows us the importance of marking God's faithfulness. I mean, every time she says her son's name, Samuel, she's remembering, God has heard me and God is faithful. 
listen, listen, listen. It's the exact same thing that George Mueller's doing when he writes down 50,000 prayer requests that he sees God answer. He is um, accumulating a vat to draw from of God's faithfulness in his life. And so Hannah, Hannah is not afraid to ask God to do the unthinkable because she knows that her God can do the impossible. And I'd invite you to write that down as we begin to close our time. As we begin to close our time, don't be afraid to ask God to do the unthinkable because he's able to do the impossible, the impossible. One story as we close. It's a story that Jesus told. It's a story about this woman who was wronged. And she went to the judge and said, I want you to make this right. And he said, okay, just, just go away. Deal with it on your own. And she kept coming back to him, kept coming back to him. She, she pestered him until he finally said, all right, fine. I've got to get this woman away from me. The only way to do it is to give her what she's asking for. What's really interesting is that Jesus sets up that story by saying, I'm telling you this parable so that you would know how to pray and not lose heart. He's saying, be the kind of people who pray. Keep asking, keep asking, keep asking before my throne. Yeah, this kind of prayer is called petition. It's birthed in relationship. It's offered in honesty and it's founded in faith. God, we believe that you can. And the scriptures say that our prayers rise like incense before the God of heaven. Friends, we pray because prayer works and prayer works because God is at work. So as a practice this week, let me invite you, if you don't already have a a prayer journal, it doesn't have to have 50,000 things in it like George Mueller, but if you don't already have a prayer journal, I'd invite you to start one. It could be really simple on your phone. It could be on paper, however it works best for you so that you can have it in front of you in the mornings when you're spending 15 minutes, at least during the season of 30 days of prayer, praying to God. And maybe you just have things like this in it. Pray for yourself and your family and your friends. Pray for some people that aren't yet followers of Jesus, that they would come to faith in Christ. Pray for our church family in this season. Pray for unity. Pray for passion. Pray for revival. Pray for our city. Pray for our country. Pray for our leaders. Pray for me. Pray for our president. Pray for the people that God has put in positions of power and and influence And pray for the things that God's put in front of you, the projects that you're working on. And I'd invite you once again to join us on campus if you're able, Wednesdays, 6.30, for a time of prayer. And if you're able health-wise to fast on Wednesday, I would invite you to join me in doing that and our staff and our team as we just pour out our hearts before God. Remember, remember, God is able. We pray because God can, not because we're sure that God will. And our petition is, God, remember me. Remember me. I'll be praying for you this week as you walk with Jesus.